0: Hello, everyone. This is Tuesday Night Rheumatology. Actually, it's the inaugural Tuesday Night Rheumatology, our grand round series. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. Uh, I hope you were here last week when we broadcast our town hall meeting. I think it was really informative. I thought our speakers were very honest, very engaging, really smart. Um, It's been viewed by over a thousand people. Uh, since we broadcast it last Thursday night, uh, it is available on the website. But for the next um, two months, we're going to be doing grand rounds on Tuesday night at this time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Uh, And I'm going to start us off with a lecture on um, the adverse effects of biologic and new agents. Um, And uh, the normal format for these events is that I'll sort of open with some news. Um, I'll get into the Grand Rounds lecture, introduce the speaker. We'll do a 30-minute lecture, um, no more than 30 slides. You're welcome to ask questions in the Q&A tab beneath your screen. Press on Q&A and you can uh, enter in your questions. And at the end of the lecture, I will go there and kind of go through questions. Um, uh, hopefully they pertain to the lecture that we're doing today. Uh, not much to report about in the news. Many of you uh, had many questions um, after our broadcast last week about the, the coronavirus um, crisis that we're in uh, and continued questions. We're collating them, collecting them We're thinking about doing another town hall. I don't wanna do one right away um, because I want us to learn a little bit more, maybe three, four more weeks of information. And then from that, we can maybe reconvene some of our prior speakers and get some new ones uh, in to do more questions uh, from you, the audience. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to show you my presentation on um, adverse effects of uh, biologics and novel agents. This is not a CME lecture. We're working on CME and whether or not we can use CME in this format. It's not as easy as it seems, but we're considering it, but this is not CME. Realize nonetheless that I do have conflicts. I didn't put the conflict slide in. I should have, uh, I basically have done research and been a consultant for all the uh, products I'm going to speak about now as they were being developed I do not do promotional lectures for any of the companies um, so let's talk about um, safety safety sort of the big the big issue that most of us have to deal with uh, especially in and around the subject of biologics and newer therapies um, for me the the real issue here is um, what are the uh, the rules that you have to live by I want to impart upon you my rules um, for dealing with safety that I've learned over the years. Number one, you got to tell patients this line. The longer you're on a drug, the safer it becomes. And you need to wrap your head around that, but it's generally true for the drugs we're going to talk about today, meaning that all the serious adverse events that you're really concerned about are things that are going to appear early on in treatment. In the first six months, for most cases, sometimes a year. And after that, these events can happen, but they're much more sporadic. One, they will have uh, happened early. And two, if they happened and then were severe enough, the patients who were susceptible would have dropped out. So depletion of susceptibles, leaving those on the drug who are likely to continue to do well. And therefore, they're going to not only just do well effic- as far as efficacy, but they're going to continue to do well as far as safety. So that's an important concept. Um, Patients on methotrexate need to hear that. Patients on combination need to hear that. Patients who are on um, Etanercept and Adalimab need to hear that because they think the longer I'm on this drug, oh man, I'm just killing my biology. I'm destroying my immune system. I'm going to die because of the television ads, say all those things. And it stews in their brains and really gets in the way of future success and compliance um, and really how they're going to do. So you need to get over that point. Number two, lower doses are not safer. Lower doses are less efficacious and less efficacy means more problems. Three, the riskiest thing you can do is play it safe. Under treatment is a bad thing in 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 an aggressive disease like rheumatoid or lupus or polymyositis or whatever. Number four, never let someone who knows less than you do about your drugs manage the situation. That includes the oncologist, the obstetrician, the pulmonologist, you know, the primary care doctor, because guess what? They're all getting their information from television, not from the papers and the conferences that you're subject to. And lastly, you need to know the numbers so that you can apply them to real life and help your patients to get better. Uh, This is what patients see when they're thinking safety. It's the risk of biologics versus the risk of the disease. And you need to flip this, this imbalance Um, Yes, you can discuss the risk of biologics as shown on the right, but you need to talk about the risk of RA, that in RA, the 800-pound gorilla in the room is the disease that is going to damage your joints, lead to deformity and disability, maybe even premature death. And if they don't take that seriously, then these other things on the right, which are largely one in 1,000 risks, are not that important compared to RA. So... You need to have this communication strategy, the 800-pound gorilla approach. Again, patients won't be thinking RA. They're going to be worrying about that that pharmacy printout, eight pages of nonsense that don't apply, often listing things that are 1 in 500 to 1 in 10,000 risks, but they're going to be swayed by the small print. Again, you need to talk about the 800-pound gorilla rheumatoid arthritis versus the flea, that one in 1,000 risk for uh, PML or for an opportunistic infection. You need to clearly portray the magnitude of what the patient needs to consider. You need to compare the two and recognize you got to do this simply and succinctly because the more you talk, the more info you give, the more pages you give, the more you're going to confuse and obfuscate the situation. This is a real big problem. a lot of patients when confronted with safety issues, become doomsday thinkers. They think that you know they're as likely to get these side, these side effects um, as anybody else. in fact, they think they're more likely when in fact they're just at the odds of winning the lottery okay and last you need to speak from strength that you know a lot about this drug you've been studying this this drug has been studied it took ten years and two billion or five billion dollars to develop this drug it's been given to a Two million people, and it's been designed just for you, Mrs. Smith. This drug was carefully chosen. And you need to portray these numbers. Now, this is a horrible slide, of course, but this is a really good slide. It comes from Gerd Burmester's review of the long-term safety of adalimumab. Over 30,000 patients, almost 60,000 patient years, and many indications. You can see, what is that? I think 11 or 10 indications here. Uh, beginning with RA on the first column on the left, and going down the line, looking at all the side effects that you think about, and just look at the data, the numbers, and what do you see? You see a lot of zeros, and you see a lot of 0.1s. I've highlighted for you malignancy, lymphoma, uh, non-melanoma skin cancer, and melanoma, and everything's a 0.1 or a zero. There's a few 0.2s, and 0.1 is a one in 1,000 risk. 0.2 is a two in 1,000 1, risk, 1,000 patient years. You can see the only big risk is up here for um, a serious infection, 3.9, 1.8, 1. 1.0. That's serious infections. That's 3.9 per 100 patient years. It's much higher, but everything else is really, really rare. But yet this is what drives the thinking or the unfortunate uh, choices that patients may make when it comes to safety. So What's a 1, 000, 1 in 1,000 risk? Opportunistic infections are a good example where it's a 1 in 1,000 to a 1 in 10,000 risk of developing an opportunistic infection with these drugs, TNF inhibitors, rituximab, tocilizumab, the JAK inhibitors uh, represented here by tofacitinib and ustekinumab as examples. You, you, you look at this list of TNF inhibitors. How many cases have you seen of salmonella, nocardia, HIV, pneumocystis, and strong with TNF inhibitors. I ain't seen them, and I use a ton of TNF inhibitors and have since 1995. Now, I think there are some that we need to worry about. Rituximab, I have a number of things listed here, but the risk of TB is probably the most important uh, risk with TNF inhibitors. You can get TB with rituximab, and you can get it with tofacitinib. Everything else is really rare as far as TB. With rituximab, you have reactivation of viral infections, especially hep B, not hep C. um, Herpes and zoster has been reported. The main thing that stands out in my mind, looking at the safety reports with rituximab is PCP, or what we now call pneumocystis uroveci, uroveci. this is actually not, not an uncommon thing, even in RA. So while I do not prophylax against PCP or pneumocystis, in my patients with RA, RA patients going on rituximab, I probably should. And any patient of ours going on rituximab probably should receive prophylaxis. Abatacept probably the safest of biologics when you look at all of the studies head-to-head. It seems to pan out, having a slight edge over everything else. But really, there's not a lot of signal here. Tocilizumab, not a lot of signal. Topacitinib, we know there's a big signal for... Um, uh, Herpes zoster, where there's at least a four to five-fold increased risk compared to TNF inhibitors. Um, Uncommon TB, but it has been reported. And BK virus is really only in the very early stages of development. Eustachinimab, also not much. So that's opportunistic infection. But let's talk about infections in general. What we do know about the use of biologics uh, is that you have a doubling of the infectious risk. These are um, the the FDA approved drugs for rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, I don't have any small molecule inhibitors in here, but the numbers are about the same. Look at the placebo column on the right and then compare it to the biologic. And you see a doubling, but that is a non-significant doubling, non-significant. When you compare the event rates, it might be for um, adalimumab, it might be two per 100 patient years, and it might be three or four per 100 patient years on a biologic, two on the placebo, two or three or four. Not significant, but it looks like a doubling. That becomes important later on. It's a doubling across the board for all these biologics, except for what? Etanercept and Golimumab. It's roughly the same rate between the biologic and the placebo. So be aware of that doubling that can occur and realize that that may be a problem. So safety events. In the pre-biologic era, when we're looking at infections, there was a rate of three to nine serious infectious events per 100 patient years. So that means follow 100 patients for one year, you'll have three or four or five or six, maybe even nine, who will end up in the hospital with a pneumonia, meningitis, septic arthritis, something along those lines. In the uh, biologic era with biologics and JAK inhibitors, the numbers are two to six, not really any higher. But there is this issue of a non-significant doubling. And that's why there is a box warning in all the package inserts for the biologics and even the targeted synthetics. It says that serious infections leading to hospitalization or death, including tuberculosis, bacterial, invasive fungal, or even viral infections, and opportunistic infections have occurred. And realize this important line. It says, if a serious infection develops, interrupt the biologic until the infection is controlled. Test and monitor for TB in many cases. This is taken from a TNF inhibitor. In some instances, it says something like, you shouldn't give the the drug or start the drug in patients who have an active infection. Nowhere does it say if you develop an infection that you should stop the biologic immediately. That's become a convention that's not well-founded in any data or practice, okay? So what are the actual risks of developing a serious infectious event? The predictors of SIEs in RA patients include, number one, above and beyond everything else is the severity of rheumatoid arthritis. That means the inflammatory um, degree of the disease, but also the debility associated with the disease. Those are two big predictors of serious infectious events. Sec- second is steroids, especially when you're at 10 milligrams or above. Third is comorbidities, and highest on that list are lung, chronic lung disease, COPD, um, BOOP, organizing pneumonia, ILD, and then diabetes, heart failure, renal failure, et cetera. But lung disease is a big player because the number one serious infectious event in RA patients is pneumonia, more so in people with chronic lung disease. Breakdown of skin, skin's your number one barrier against infection, so wounds, ulcers. Patients undergoing surgery and then major joint surgery is a risk factor. There is very little risk imposed by, by um, DMARDs, methotrexate combination of drugs, triple DMARD therapy, even cyclosporin, and there is also very little risk imposed by the biologics. Again, it's a small but but not significant risk, uh, and I'll show you where that comes into play. What about steroids? Do they actually cause infection? Recognize that. You know, half to maybe two-thirds of your patients are on some dose of steroids. In really every disease in almost any situation, steroids in higher doses, we don't know what that dose is when you go from sort of normal to being too normal to too high, but steroids will increase the odds of non-serious infectious events, serious infectious events, TB and opportunistic infections, and wound infections, and post-op infections, etc. So Obviously, patients who you don't want to have infections, you would want to get them off steroids after you've controlled their disease. Look at this table. It shows you what the risk is based on whether it's a low-risk patient or a high-risk patient. Low risk means pretty simple disease, fairly well controlled. High risk is someone not well controlled, many swollen joints, you know, comorbidities, hospitalizations, you know, train wrecks. Even in with low doses, five milligrams or less, you probably have some risk imposed by using steroids, but. It, Low-risk patients, 5 milligrams, maybe up to 10 milligrams, you're not likely to incur a risk. However, above 10, 10 to 15 or higher, it's likely you're going to have risks. High-risk people are at higher risk, and steroids add to risk. That's how you should think about steroids. This is also how you should think about steroids, but more importantly, uh, how you should think about the addition of a biologic. And that's uh, led to what we call the rabbit risk score, but you can look that up elsewhere Look at this, Uh, this is um, the front row, the gray row, are patients that are on DMARG and TNF inhibitors. This is from the German um, rabbit registry. And you can see that uh, if you're on low dose steroids on the far left, less than 7.5, not much difference between the two bars, the gray bars. Um, If you're on medium doses, up to 14 milligrams, not much difference between the gray bars. Maybe when you get to 15 milligrams above, adding a TNF inhibitor looks like it might be more. But then look at the rows behind the blue rows, and then the, the that brown row in the back. When you start developing, adding in one, two, or three additional risk factors, um, now the addition of a TNF inhibitor adds to risk. So the risk factors are age greater than 60, chronic lung disease, chronic renal disease, uh, a high number of treatment failures prior serious infectious events. If you had a prior serious infectious event, guess what? You're likely to get it again. So if someone really had a hospitalizable pneumonia, they're likely to get it again, especially if they're sick, especially if they're on steroids, maybe if they're also going on a biologic. So this basically says the addition of a biologic is tenuous, difficult, and risky in your worst patients, who happen to be the people who need it most. It's got very little risk in people who are, you know you're going to control pretty quickly by the addition of more aggressive therapy. So SIE risk, is, is multifactorial and augmented by steroids, comorbidities, prior SIEs, and then the addition of the biologic. So my rules, infection risk is more likely related to inflammation and the disease than the drug, right? And this is a big issue right now with the coronavirus. Everyone's worried about our drugs and what they're doing. Most of our drugs are not really immunosuppressive. We should be worried about the disease and the patient and what the patient's risk is based on their inflammation recent hospitalizations and comorbidities, then our drugs could add to risk, but only after those things are in play. Number two, everybody gets their education, everybody but you gets their education from television. So we're not gonna listen to everybody and you have to tell your patients, they're gonna listen to you, the person who prescribed the biologic. The most dangerous drug is clearly prednisone. Everyone should agree to that. And my rules for holding and stopping the biologic is if you're hospitalized, if you have a fever greater than 102, or if you're very immunosuppressed, chemotherapy, cancer, uh, immunodeficiency states, renal transplant, and you have a fever greater than 100.5 or 101, yeah, I'll stop. Notice, I do not stop for URIs, influenza, um, you know, nonsense infections, non-serious infections, because why? It doesn't matter. The drug's gonna be around for four to 12 weeks. By then, they're over their infection. It just looks good on paper. Um, And now the world has these inappropriate practices of stopping drugs, and you know the problems, what happens when the surgeons stop your drug, bad things. Well, if you feed into this issue of stopping drugs when patients are going for infusion and they got a little bit of a cold or a cough or a sore throat, give it. It doesn't matter. It happened with the first 30,000 patients going on biologics in clinical trials. Peter Merkel said prednisone is the best drug we have, and prednisone is the worst drug we have. Thank you, Peter, for that quote. So TB, the risk of TB in the United States seems to go down every year. It's about four per 100,000. An RA patient, um, if you look at RA patients um, in our society, it's about six to seven. So RA imposes a slight increased risk. This applies to the the countries like the US, Canada, um, Europe, uh, UK, Western Europe, Australia, um, when you go into places where, I call them TB land, where TB is endemic, the risk can be as high as 250 to 500, as high as 12, even 12,000 for 100,000. People who were born there, people who live there, who go on TNF inhibitors are a much greater risk. The TB and opportunistic infection risk is worsened by TNF inhibitors. TNF, TNF is needed to s- establish a granuloma that protects the bug or walls off the bug um, and, and to maintain it. If you inhibit TNF, um, you won't do that or you'll break down those granulomas and develop um, spread of, of infection that may be quiescent. Um, it's much, much higher with TNF inhibitors, and not so high with all the drug, other drugs we use, including you know IL-6 inhibitors and JAK inhibitors, et cetera. Although we do test for TB, it's sort of the design of the study that led to that. The number needed to harm with TB is one in 500. The box warning for nearly all biologics says that you should screen for TB prior to starting a biologic or a JAK inhibitor or a TNF inhibitor, um, but not all IL-1 inhibitors, for instance, and not methotrexate, azathioprine, a and a kinra, a lot of anakinra, for rituximab, belimumab, and pegloticase. Let's go on to shingles. Um, you know what's great about shingles is that it's a common thing. We have to deal with it, and we have solutions. One third of the population in the United States at least is going to get a reactivation of varicella zoster. Um, this, the event rate is about four to 11 per 1,000 patient years and it goes up with age. On the very bottom, you can see that a normal person, it's four. An older OA patient, it's 10 per 1,000. RA, it goes maybe as high as 14. Um, and it's about the same an RA patient on a TNF inhibitor. Lupus and GPA is higher. When you look at the JAK inhibitors, topocytinib and baricitinib, you can see it's it's much higher. It's almost four times higher than that seen in RA patients or OA patients. So again, something you need to have a strategy about. Well, up until now, we couldn't use the live virus vaccine in people who are um, patients who are going to go on drugs that might augment their risk or situations that might augment their risk if they were on a biologic. You could use the live virus Zostavax vaccine in people on DMARDs, and even steroids up to 20 milligrams. But now we have the new inactive virus, the Shingrix vaccine, developed and approved in 2017, really based on the ZOE50 and ZOE70 trials in over 38,000 patients showing greater than 90% efficacy. This inactive vaccine can be given to patients prior to going on a biologic, prior to going on a JAK inhibitor, can be given while they're on a biologic or while they're on a JAK inhibitor. The downside here is it's cost and it's two injections. And these people have more constitutional manifestations during the, or after they get their injection. Pain, redness, swelling, muscle pain, flu-like symptoms, shivering fever, GI upset, up to 50% of patients in, in clinical trials. And you get it the second time around as well. But it's good news. Now, the question is, will giving the Shingrix vaccine, this is the, a subunit vaccine that has an adjuvant, Will it make RA worse? Will it make lupus patients worse? Well, that was actually studied at this year's last past ACR with two different studies, one from um, the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis, and one from the Brigham and Women's uh, group. They did a the first one was a retrospective study of 47 patients who received the herpes zoster subunit vaccine. Most of these were RA, um, half were on biologics, half were on DMARDs. There were four flare-ups overall, not very much and very little in the way of adverse events. No reactivation or shingles events. Um, Mike Weinblatt's study from the Brigham, a retrospective study of 400 patients, 236 with RA, other diseases also studied. Um, and you can see the 20, 12% were on TOFA, it's 26% on CNF inhibitors. Flare rate was 6%. This was less than the BRASS flare rate of 30%. The adverse events were mild in most, 13% um, uh, um, and then 11% with the first dose and 8.7% with the second dose. There were no cases of zoster reported. There is concern, I guess, that this could make RA worse. This doesn't be founded by these two um, observational retrospective studies. So vaccination is the best way to prevent infection. Let's talk about PCV13 and PPSV23, also known as Prevnar13 or pneumavax on it. and this is this is the sequence if on top if you're one of our patients and you're being vaccinated for the first time you get the prevnar first you wait eight weeks and then you give the uh the pneumavax the ppsv23 the pneumavax as you know you can give it a second time but you wait five years however if one of your patients got pneumavax first and that was already given how long do you wait before you give the Prevnar 13 You wait one year. These are guidelines from the um, uh, ACIP from the CDC. You wait one year and then you give the PCV-13. And then after that, you can give PPSV-23 as long as it's five years after the first time it was given in eight weeks after the PCV-13. So the general rules here are first PCV-13, wait eight weeks for the PPSV-23, the numavax And again, a second uh, Pneumovex five years after the first, okay? Some general rules as to who should not receive a TNF inhibitor under infectious situations. Number one, uh, those with active hepatitis as demonstrated by a positive hepatitis B surface antigen, okay? You can give it with low risk for people who have a negative hepatitis B surface antigen, but patients who are core antibody positive they have about a 2% risk of reactivation. You follow them, you follow their LFTs, you can do viral loads. Number two, patients with a non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection, NTM's used to be called atypical mycobacteria. These you can find but they and you can treat, but they never resolve. You can find TB, you can treat it, but, and it resolves and you take your risk back to well, the baseline risk. Here, they're always at risk, they're never fully eradicated. The same can be said for number three, invasive fungal infections, I do not mean oral thrush, I mean invasive fungal infections, tissue infections, you again cannot fully eradicate that. And lastly, patients who are getting intravascular BCG for bladder cancer, they have a high risk of of reactivating TB and getting disseminated TB while you're treating them for their bladder cancer. If you'll notice for the first uh, three, there's an asterisk for number one, number two, and number three, and the asterisk means if absolutely necessary, you could use a TNF inhibitor in these situations as long as they're on chronic prophylaxis for the hepatitis uh, B, and that would be like with etanavir or a typical um, NTM infections. That would be with uh, azithromycin or invasive fungal infection, one of the itraconazole-like drugs. Okay, you can do that. You reduce the risk. It doesn't go to zero, but you can reduce the risk. A lot has been talked about, about uh, thromboembolic events or VTEs and JAK inhibitors. You should know our patients were, that we treat are at risk. The normal population, the risk is zero to four per 1,000 patient years. RA patients, the rate is about three to six VTEs per 1,000 patient years. It's higher. And if you give a JAK inhibitor, it's a little bit higher, maybe two or three more cases, if at all possible, Not positive. not all studies have been positive here and will talk about that. But recognize this big concern is really an additional two to three events per 1,000 patient years. Let's not get too crazy about this. There's a clear risk of VTE with cancer, RA, ankle holding spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, all inflammatory diseases. But again, what is the risk imposed by a JAK? Uh, it's not so clear, but it's now a warning. It's a box warning um, in, in America, and it's even a more serious warning uh, in the EU from the, the uh, EMA. Um, the first JAK inhibitor developed was ruxolotinib for uh, myelodysplasia. It's not in the package insert, um, but there are reports of portal vein thrombosis. Baracitinib, it was in the package insert because of an imbalance of VTE events, but it was in the package insert in other countries before it was approved here in the United States. Um, went on the market with a warning, uh, and at the same time, Uh, topocitinib, which did not have an initial warning in its package, um, changed when they were doing the long-term safety study, uh, which disclosed that patients taking the higher doses of topocitinib, 10 milligrams BID, that was associated with an increased risk of pulmonary embolism and cardiac death when compared to the comparator group taking TNF inhibitors. Now, these patients in this safety study were high-risk patients taking either 5 milligrams BID of topocitinib, 10 milligrams BID of topocitinib, or adalinumab in standard doses. So this has led to a lot of concern, and across the board, uh, box warnings for um, uh, venous problem events, Uh, and now the the EMA has said that, um, you know, do not use a a JAK inhibitor. We're talking about Zeljans here, but again, it's going to probably, in the EMA, it's going to probably bleed over to the other JAK inhibitors. Right now, this is just an EMA guideline for tofacitinib. Zeljan should be used in caution in all patients who are at risk for, for blood clots. The problem is that if you look down here at the third bullet, they say that includes people with a history of blood clots, people who are on hormonal contraceptives, receiving hormone replacement therapy, those who are undergoing major surgery or mobile, and may also be at risk for people who are elderly, obese, diabetes, hypertension, and smoking. My goodness. Basically, nobody can take a JAK inhibitor. Uh, again, this is a little draconian for what I said was an additional two to three events per 1,000 patient years. They have come away with a final decision on this. This is only in Europe. This is not in the United States. But I want you to know the more extreme version of this. How does this play out in practice? If you have a patient on a jack inhibitor and now you're hearing all this for the first time, do not rush. And, and now you and then you see, oh my goodness, she had a, a DVT eight years ago, or. Had an MI last year, or had a PE in the past. Again, if someone had repeated thrombotic events, I might seriously consider changing the jack inhibitor. But if someone had one event that was a long ago and they've been on a jack inhibitor for a while now, more than a year. Remember, all the bad events happened in the first year, not you know many years later. Um, you know, have a discussion with the patient about the risk here, and is it better to continue the drug that's working? versus worrying about a drug that may cause a risk, an additional risk that uh, impacts two or three per 1,000. Think about it. Let's talk about colitis and IL-17 inhibitors. You know that there's a lot of trials with ixekizumab and Secukinumab that have disclosed this risk. Uh, again, the number of events is very, very low. If you look on the left, the Crohn's disease risk is about 1.1 per 1,000 patient years. The UC risk is 1.9 for 1,000 patient years. Again, it's in the warning that, that you can have a, um, the onset of new IBD, ulcerative colitis and or uh, Crohn's disease, and when taking a IL-17 inhibitor for the first time. You might want to use caution when giving these drugs to people who have that. Those patients were generally um, uh, excluded from those clinical trials. Look at the secukinumab data. It's a little more revealing. Again, the same number of events were seen but in their psoriasis trials, the CD rate was 0.6 per 1,000, that's six per 10,000. The UC rate was 1.4 per 1,000. The AS trials, look, it's a little higher, but remember, our, those all those old studies in AS where we found that occult um, terminal ileitis, that infectious looking inflammatory disease, maybe incipient Crohn's disease in pa- patients with, Cro- with uh, ankylosing spondylitis, and would that come out in time or would that be the basis upon which we would use uh, um, azulfidine to treat their disease and maybe to treat their risk of future Crohn's disease? It's not surprising that there's a small, a higher percentage of people here who may go on and have uh, and develop IBD. So again, I, I might think twice about using this if someone has a clear-cut history of IBD, UC, or Crohn's. But I don't worry about it going forward. I certainly don't worry about it if people have a family history. In my, in my estimation, that's a crazy kind of stupid. Um, let's talk about IL-6 inhibitors. Um, these were approved in 2010 for tocilizumab, 2017 for ceruliumab. We know these drugs uh, increase lipids. 20% of patients will have an increase in lipids, um, but it doesn't seem from our clinical trials and the long-term follow-up, they don't seem to have a higher rate of MACE, but those are in you know a few thousand patients with these drugs. What happens when you do much larger cohorts out in the real world. And this is the follow-up studies for cardiac risk. One, there's an in-track study with Tannercept. This is a large 3,000 patient study that did a head-to-head comparison of Tocilizumab and Etanercept in RA patients treated for 30 years. There was no increase in death or MACE when you were using an IL-6 inhibitor compared to TF inhibitors, but t- uh, Tocilizumab had a few more LDL elevations. They had a few more AEs um, and serious infections and GI perforations. They're known for GI preparations, the IL-6 inhibitors, just like they are with um, the, the, the tofacitinib and JAK inhibitors. Claims data study, over 20,000 patients followed those on tosalizumab abatacept, and their cardiac events. The cardiac event risk was equal between tosalizumab and abatacept; no difference there. So again, I think it's important to note that you know while we worry about that, we worry about that uh, hyperlipidemia, and by the way, it doesn't seem to be seen in people already have a history of hyperlipidemia and are being treated with a lipid-lowering agent. It's, it's, it's a way, it's already being treated more or less. It seems to be the de novo occurrence here. And some of those patients are gonna to need to go on treatment. And you need to watch that along with the primary care doctor. Overall, the IL-6 inhibitors have a very low risk of TB, hep B reactivation, and perforations, as I said, are seen here, 0.26 per 100 patient years, 0.11 per 100 patient years, comparing tocilizumab and Map. Uh, Again, and those rates are about the same as what you would see uh, with a JAK inhibitor. Let's talk about cancer. Uh, We have a few more minutes. We can go into this. Um, Let's say a patient comes to you with a history of cancer. What drug would you avoid using, or I'm sorry, with which cancer would you not use a TNF inhibitor? A, breast cancer, B, lymphoma, C, uh, lung cancer, D, skin cancer, E, all the above, F, none of the above. Well, I've asked this question many times to many people, and the usual answer is "Eh," B, and that's the wrong answer, according to me, who studied this for many, many years and looked at tens of thousands of patients. The answer is none of the above, none of the above. Your job is to treat the arthritis, let someone else deal with the cancer. You can worry about cancer, and you can refer patients for cancer screening. You know, Patients on TNF inhibitors, the package insert says everyone needs to be screened annually for skin cancer. I know you're not doing it. You should either request it of the primary care doctor or the dermatologist. So what's the overall risk of getting cancer with rheumatoid arthritis? You can see it's one, shown on right. The SIR, or the standardized incidence ratio, is one. But that's misleading because there is a higher risk of lung and lymphoma uh, and maybe melanoma um, and skin cancers in general. And there's a lower risk of colon and breasts and maybe certain head and neck. So the idea is that it all equally goes out to one. But we do know that there's a lymphoma risk imposed by uh, age, by longstanding RA, um, and maybe certain therapies. The question is, do the TNF inhibitors do more than what we see with RA alone or RA severe enough to go on a TNF inhibitor? All this stems from my 2003 FDA hearing, where in the first 6,000 patients treated with these three TNF inhibitors, they found six cases of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma B cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in people on these drugs and none on the placebo. So they did a hearing and they showed a total of 23 lymphomas. You can see that um, um, most of them were not Hodgkin's and the event rate was three and a half to about 6.4 per 100 patient years. By the way, this number overlaps the exact number you would have in RA patients. Many, many population-based studies show this is the rate that you see for lymphoma in our RA patients. This study by Bakland shows that the risk of developing um, lymphoma in RA is directly related to inflammation. On the top shows low, medium, and high inflammatory activity. And look at the odds ratios, one going up to 71. Or functional class, disability, one going up to 67. It's inflammation and chronicity that gives you the risk of lymphoma in RA. You see this in this really good study done in Scandinavia. This is the onset of RA, is this line right in the middle prior to having RA, the risk of having lymphoma or any cancer was basically one or below. After the onset of RA, you can see there is no real increased risk until you get to after six years. And here, you can see lymphoma risk takes off. So it's chronicity and inflammation that drives the lymphoma risk, not the drugs. And this is uh, these people were not treated with, uh, with TNF inhibitors. So there's no good evidence that biologics can cause or worsen solid malignancies. The ACR guidelines say, you, if you have a solid cancer that's pancreatic, skin, lung, colon, you know, uh, ovarian, uterine, etc., you should treat the patient as if they don't have the cancer, meaning the biologic doesn't affect either their risk or their outcomes. Being on a biologic does not alter um, cancer mortality. Not at all. There's many studies that have looked at that. It does not increase the risk of cancer recurrence. Um, And there's a concern about increasing the risk of melanoma. I'll show you that it doesn't. And I advocate that you treat the arthritis and let someone else screen for and worry about cancer. This is a Swedish national study. You know, um, 15,000 patients, 7,400 on biologics. They compared that to 46,000 on DMARDs. And look on the right box. The first invasive, solid or hematologic malignancy was the same regardless of the drug and compare that to the bottom line, 1,300 on a conventional DMARD and 950 on a general population. It's no different with our biologics. Looking at invasive, um, uh, this is recurrent uh, tumors over here. It's not any high, I'm sorry, these are the hazard ratios for the numbers on top. It's not increased. What about the issue of melanoma? The concern about melanoma comes from the British Biologics Registry where they showed that patients who were on a TNF inhibitor actually had a lower risk of recurrence of cancer than patients on DMARs. But for those people who had a history of melanoma and they grouped in people with melanoma in situ and invasive melanoma here, there was a slightly higher risk. This is a study from, um, I believe it's nine registries in 11 registries in nine European countries. And the risk of first invasive melanoma with a biologic, and they have um, a whole, you know, TNF inhibitors here. They've done the analysis with all the biologics. There is no higher risk of, of melanoma when you go on a biologic with either a TNF inhibitor or other drugs. So again, I'm, I'm not afraid to treat anyone with hairy cell leukemia or lymphoma or melanoma as I think they need to be treated. And I don't, do not allow my OBGYNs to manage my very sick RA patients. I do not allow my oncologists to manage um, my RA patients or PSA patients who need to be treated. So the data is very clear. Overall cancer risk, lung skin, lymphoma, melanoma, breast colon, the risk is the same whether you have rheumatoid arthritis or whether you're rheumatoid arthritis or going on a TNF inhibitor. Same can be said here, by the way, for other diseases too. So I think, you know, it's our job to treat aggressively these things. I'm going to end there and tell you next week, I'm going to be talking to you about the evaluation of febrile rheumatic patients. Um, That's going to be Tuesday the 14th. It's 8 p.m. Eastern. I'm going to talk about auto-inflammatory diseases uh, and Stills disease and how to diagnose them, uh, either clinically or by genetic testing, and what might be your next best therapy. So I'm going to stop there. Um, I'm going to give you a brief look at the odds of dying in a house fire is 1 in 1,000. The odds of a plane crash is 1 in 8,000 dying is one in 11 million. So again, these might be numbers that you want to post. I'm going to post this for you to see on the website uh, in the recording. So I want you to look for that. OK, at this point, we're going to go um, back to um, each of you. I want to look at uh, your questions um, and see what we have, what we can answer in the next 17 minutes. Uh, so I'm going to get a lot of questions about the pandemic. Um, Am I extending the lab monitoring for methotrexate and DMARDs? No, I'm doing the exact same thing as I have always done every three or four months, but I think the question's a good one. I think we tend to do too much monitoring. There are guidelines. I think the um, the, um, NICE and the BSRBR, the British registry people, came up with a line that said something like, for people who you've been monitoring their labs every three months, and in the last eight years, you haven't seen any abnormalities with these labs. You can probably extend the monitoring without risk. So that might be a good idea. I probably should adopt that. Um, how long and when would you uh, do prophylaxis for PCP with um, Rituxan? I do it in all patients um, with other autoimmune diseases, you know, lupus, myositis, and whatnot. I'm now starting to do it in my patients with um, uh, RA. I use a lot of Rituximab in RA, unlike most people. It is a one in 30,000 risk in RA uh, to develop PML. It is a one in 2,000 risk to develop PML if you have lupus. But yet everybody's losing it at lupus. Granted, we may have more choices in RA and less choices in lupus, but I think we should worry about PCP. In spite of my not doing it for many years, um, I can't say I've seen a PCP in my RA patients on rituximab. Um, um, why is the steroids the third approach to still use um, Tony Russell, hi Tony. Um, Tony Russell's taught me tons about rheumatology and managing all diseases, including how to use steroids. Um, or why are we still using steroids? That is a really strong point. You know, Michelle Petrie, uh, if you hear any of her st- recent lectures, she'll strongly tell you we shouldn't be using steroids in lupus. You should treat them with steroids, but get them off steroids and manage them more effectively with other drugs. You know, I think the reason to use steroids was that there are a lot of data showing that when steroids are part of a combination regimen, they seem to do better. But I think it's a convention that we can now blow up with all the great therapies we do and knowing the disaster that steroids can cause. I think Tony's point is a really, really good one. Um, What about IL-17 autoimmune hepatitis? I have a PSA patient who has fatty liver, increased LFTs, um, and likely has autoimmune hepatitis. I think your patient has Um, You know, PSA and fatty liver, there is no clear evidence that IL-17 inhibitors cause autoimmune hepatitis that I am aware of. So again, I think if you want to make that diagnosis, you're going to either need serologic proof of the diagnosis or biopsy evidence. Um, um, Would you keep a patient with colon or prostate cancer on TNF inhibitor? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's my job to treat them. Let someone else treat the prostate cancer. And let me tell you where, this, where you get in trouble. If you happen to live in New York or Buffalo or Houston, at Sloan, where Sloan Kettering, MD Anderson, and Roswell Park Cancer Institutes are, Dana-Farber, there's a whole bunch of them, and you ask those oncologists what to do when they've got a can- your patient who's on a biologic, they'll say, you treat them, I'll take care of the cancer, and we'll communicate. In the rest of the world where people don't see so much and are may not be well-versed, you get a lot of advice that says stop the biologic, stop the methotrexate and that's unfounded. And what they're really telling you is people inexperienced are worried about what they don't know. It goes to what I said earlier, don't let people know less than you do about your drugs, manage your situation. Um, and you know, yes, a, an ecologist job is hard and people are crapping out all the time and they have all kinds of toxicities from their chemotherapy. They don't know what your drug's going to do or what it's going to do with their drugs. That's why they want to stop them. If you think your patient really needs it, make sure they stay on it or continue to see you. Um, um, Here's a good one. What do I do with my RA patient who has active disease and is now due for a tuximab infusion? Should I wait? Well, we dealt with this today in clinic, a patient who was on abatacept and is two weeks overdue on their um, abatacept infusion. We said right now our infusion centers are being redesigned to accommodate um, social distancing and hygienic practices to allow for this. Fewer people are coming in for their infusions, so it's not likely they're going to catch that um, uh, COVID from uh, the contact issue. So we're telling the patient, go next week and get it done. For Tuximab, there's not a lot of data about the downside of, being uh, on rituximab and uh, risk of, of COVID. So if the patient, if that, uh, I would say if the patient is clearly benefited from rituximab, I would give it, especially if it's due. Can you wait another month or two? Can you temporize? And do you want to temporize with steroids, which are clearly more dangerous and known to be dangerous in this situation? Go ahead, but I wouldn't do it. I would give it the rituximab. If the, however, the rituximab never worked, then, you know, Switch. Go on to something else. There are a lot of good choices out there. Uh, what would you give someone on intravascular BCG? Anything but a TNF inhibitor. Anything but a TNF inhibitor. I might make my next least likely choice rituxan, and my next least likely choice a JAK inhibitor. But honestly, I would use those. I would use abatacept and DMARDS, and I would use uh, IL six inhibitors without any hesitation at all. Um, uh, let's see, a patient who has um, active lymphoma, and we were looking to add a biologic. We would favor rituximab and abatacept over TNF. Well, you, if you're a favorite rituximab, you'll be following ACR guidelines which are expert consensus. And I wasn't on that committee, and there's no basis for that recommendation. By the way, there is a registry of patients, RA patients on rituximab and cancers that they've developed. And guess what, they get the same darn cancers that RA patients who go on TNF inhibitors get, which is the same cancers that an RA patient gets. So on the other hand, there's 30,000 or more patients in clinical trials who have received TNF inhibitors with no added risk of cancer from those observational studies. I would use a TNF inhibitor if I thought a TNF inhibitor was best. I would use the best drug available whether it was a TNF inhibitor, or rituximab, you shouldn't be constrained by any one thing because, again, the guidelines aren't particularly smart here. Okay. In an RA patient with newly diagnosed uh, cancer, she's undergoing chemotherapy. Uh, I think we just answered that. Have you found that narcotic use increases the risk of infection? Uh, found with IBD patients on TNF inhibitors. Hmm. I am not, I, I'm, I've seen that data before. I have not seen it in our patient population. Um, I think it says a lot about the patient under study. Patients on narcotics tend to be more complex with more comorbidities. And I, don't, I think the narcotic is a surrogate for complexity um, and hence an augmented risk for infection. Um, have you seen COVID-19 in RA patients on biologics? Yes, John, John Goldman from Atlanta has asked that question. I think I addressed that um, last week in the um, town hall. Um, the most recent numbers, I'll try to tweet them maybe tomorrow. Um, the most recent town hall, I'm sorry, the most recent update to the um, room COVID um, uh, registry, the room-covid.org or, the Global Rheumatology Alliance Registry, I think they have 220 patients um, uh, reported, and and there's a whole bunch of them on biologics. These are patients who uh, who, who have mostly RA, 38%, 40%, 17, 16% with PSA, same number with lupus, and um, I think the number was 40 something percent on biologics. So yes, being on biologics doesn't seem to be a factor um, There was a low number of patients who were admitted to ICU in that registry. Right now, we need to get more numbers on that. And there's a patient um, survey going around, which is gonna be valuable because they'll be able to tell patients who are uh, on hydroxychloroquine or on um, an IL-6 inhibitor and those that are not, and look at what happens to them. Do they get more severe infections or less severe infections? Were they protect or not? We need that data, uh, and it's rapidly accumulating. If you have a patient who has infection or even suspected infection, add them to the registry. As you heard from Alan Matsumoto last week, it's an easy, easy thing to do. Um, Let's see. Um, Since rituximab can decrease immunoglobulins, is there a particular risk uh, at a certain time, at this time of COVID? First off, the data on um, um, uh, immunoglobulin levels and rituximab is not what you think. Look at the original data when it first came out. The first two, three, four, five infusions are not associated with a decrease in immunoglobulins. What are you decreasing when you give rituximab? You are decreasing um, uh, immunoglobulin uh, producing, I'm sorry, CD19, um, CD20, uh, sorry, CD20 positive B cells. You are not decreasing plasma cells in tissues that make the immunoglobulin. So you're knocking out the B cells into circulation, not the plasma cells that are doing all the work, which is why the vast majority of patients on rituximab will continue to make rheumatoid factor and CCP and make normal levels of IgG, IgA, and IgM. Now, there is the study from Ron Van Bolenhofen, which is the cumulative experience you know, uh, you know. I think the number is several thousand patients treated for over 10 years with a mean of nine inf- nine infusions. There, the number was pretty clear that if patients who had low IgG levels were the RA patients who were at higher risk to get infections before they got and when they went on the rituximab, or those who developed infections after having received rituximab. So. Pre-treatment IgG levels being low um, and the same thing or developing IgG levels that are low is a risk factor. And maybe those are the people that might be greatest risk during the the COVID-19 crisis. Um, uh, I have a patient with COVID-19 in the ICU. Oh, gee, I'm so sorry, Dr. Gupta. The patient has a cardiopulmonary sarcoid on Humira um, approved three weeks ago, um, methotrexate and prednisone, 20 milligrams. You stop methotrexate and the biologic, you get the patient off the of steroids, lower the steroids. I would have continued the methotrexate. I would have continued the Humira. Humira, there's no reports, by the way, in this COVID era worldwide that the use of TNF inhibitors has been associated with better or worse outcomes. There are reports of patients on steroids and the elderly and those with comorbidity, heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, having worse outcomes, threefold worse outcomes. Now, again, the worst outcomes are small percentages. You know, one, 2% now becomes 7%, 15% becomes, you know, um, 33% or something like that. But again, these are not universal risk factors, but they do augment risk. I would have kept the patient on those drugs. By the way, I don't know that adalimumab uh, works. In um, someone with uh, cardiopulmonary sarcoid. Um, my impression, looking at that d- data, is you do that as a last-ditch effort, and it's mainly effective in people who have neurosarcoid and ophthalmic sar- sarcoid. But if the patient was responding um, to their cardiopulmonary sarcoid, um, then yes, I would maintain that. And, um, and I don't think there's a downside to continuing that. Um, uh, my issue with rituximab is that it has a longer half-life, and it doesn't work. If it doesn't work, I have to wait longer to switch. Well, number one, that's wrong. It's right and it's wrong. Meaning, don't use rituximab as your first choice when you have drugs that you can switch to that have very short half-lives, and you can make the switch overnight. And that includes the JAK inhibitors, and you know um, even you know so, some IL6, uh, IL6, and, IL- and and TNF inhibitors you can switch right away. But if someone's not responding to any biologic, including rituximab, you should not be waiting to wash that out. Oh, by the way, they're not doing well. They're failing. And now you're going to wash them out of a drug that might could be working? Bad idea. They're going to get a lot worse and the disease is going to kill them more than a drug. So if I have someone, I've done this many times, and Mark Genovese has a study showing that there's no higher risk of infection. Such patients who are failing everything are at a higher risk. Like instead of being 2 3%, 4%, they might be 7%, 8 9%. But anyway, um, patients who are failing with they need something else, move to something else, and don't, don't worry about it. So again, that's how you should be doing this prior to the coronavirus crisis. Um, again, I gave you other reasons, other things to monitor, like IgG levels in making that decision, right? Um, would there be a COVID concern with abatacept? Not for me. Um, I don't have any data that, I, that would suggest otherwise. Um, let's see um, if I could have, I might've skipped an infection, a question from before, let's see. Oh, thank you. I think Tammy is, uh, is, is making them go away. Um, if a patient gets a URI, what do I do? I do not stop the biologic. If they have the sniffles, I do not stop the biologic. If they have the flu, I do not stop the biologic. If they have COVID, Proven COVID. Do not stop the biologics. Stay home. They don't need to be treated with anything. Again, at-home coronavirus-infected individuals, the ID experts are not recommending hydroxychloroquine. They are not recommending Actemra. Hydroxychloroquine, investigational, not yet proven. Two observational studies suggest it. Not yet proven. There's well-designed trials in process. Um, It is indicated for people who are hospitalized, for people with rapidly progressive advancing lung problems. Um, the use of an IL-6 inhibitor is also indicated um, after patients have had the infection probably for more than a week and you're concerned about their lung disease getting worse from the cytokine storm or them getting systemically worse and they're having high fevers and their CRP levels are sky high. My patient has a CRP level of 500 milligrams per deciliter. 500! 500! And they were waiting for the IL-6 levels to come back. What? They already know what the IL-6 levels are going to be. So yes, that patient went on Ectemra. Um, and I think that was a smart thing to do. Let's see. Um, a patient newly diagnosed with cancer, she's going for chemotherapy. Do you still provide DMARDs or do you stop during the treatment? Nope, I don't stop. Again, the problem is, I'm, that's what my wish is. If I thought the patient was sick enough to get on a biologic, then I would continue it. Um, I would start a biologic during someone's cancer therapy if their RA was worse or their PSA was worse or the psoriasis was worse. I would would start it during pregnancy, especially after the first eight weeks after organogenesis is done. Uh, It's my job to treat the arthritis. I would not stop during treatment. The problem is that when they go to the oncologist and when they go to the obstetrician, now you are invisible with no voice because the person who's driving the bus on treatment decisions is the cancer doctor or the obstetrician, and they don't know anything about your disease or your drugs. You and you can get involved and contact and have an ongoing discussion with those doctors, but again, it's gonna take your effort. Um, I think um, uh, Dr. Abbas says, um, did I hear you right? Well, turn up your volume, and now you can hear me even more right when I say I would not stop a biologic in a COVID-positive patient who is now on a biologic. I have no reason to stop it. If they're on an IL-6 inhibitor and hydroxychloroquine, great. If not, I'm not going to start it. And, but if they're on abatacept or an IL-6 inhibitor, or they receive Rituximab, can't stop that. With most of these drugs that you're going to stop, how long is it going to take to get it out of their system? It's three and a half weeks for a tanner cell. It's 12 weeks for a limb map. It's a year for rituximab. The story is gonna be well over by the time the patient has gone through their coronavirus infection. Hopefully they're gonna be the 85% who are gonna do well and stay at home. If they're the 15% who going to the hospital, then you should be in communication with the doctors in the hospital about how to manage the patient. Um, Okay. I'm going to, I'll, again, there seems to be a lot of concern about B. I'm more concerned about B cell depletion than you. Well, then I hope that you're measuring B, B cells, which only tell you half the story. Because you can measure B cells and they're all supposed to go boom to nothing. Right? But you got to measure immunoglobulins if you really want to be worried. And the studies from all the trials show that they have normal immunoglobulins and they blunt their rheumatoid factor and CCP a little bit with many repeated treatments, and I'm talking two infusions, two weeks apart, one infusion, one infusion, two weeks apart, done every 12 months. I don't do it every six months. That's a failure in my mind. Um, and let's say they're on it for nine years. Yeah, after the fifth or sixth time, I'm measuring immunoglobulins. And I would worry now, as you might worry, if there's a low IgG, the research is pretty clear about that. Um, rituximab interferes with vaccine responses. You're not giving any vaccines. It with with response to neoantigens. This is not a neoantigen. Um, again, I think that uh, I, I, Elliot. I think that um, you can't stop it um, if you don't want to start it. I think that's okay, but I, it wouldn't change my story in someone who's infected. All right, folks, we're going to end there because it's the top of the hour, um, I hope you can tune in next week. Um, we're going to talk about the assessment and management of fever in our rheumatic patients. And does that mean it's all inflammatory? Does that mean it stills? And how can I prove one or the other? Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for your questions. Um, You can follow this lecture. Tell your friends about it. We're going to post it on the video section for next Monday, I think. We're going to let the, uh, actually, starting probably on Friday, we're going to post this particular video uh, for people to view, uh, and we're going to run it for a week. That's it, folks. Have a good night. Thanks.